Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. We know that you have brought us together and that you, in your grace, have saved us and also brought us to this church. And even this morning, you have ordained for us to be here. And we thank you that you love us. You've proven your love for us by giving us even your own son. And Lord Jesus, we know that you have laid down your life for us out of your love. We thank you and we give you all the glory and we want to know you more. We want to understand your word and absorb its truth. Lord, we pray for the Spirit's work, his work of illumination to give us understanding that would be just beyond our heart, beyond our minds, but also an understanding of the heart that would lead to acceptance of your truth and that it might change our, our very character and lead to a transformation of our life. We want that, Lord, but we know that that's your will for us as well, to wash us with the water of the word. And so we pray for that this morning and ask your blessing as we work through what is a challenging text. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, as we continue our study, you can see we've come. Session 11, we're on Romans 5, 12 through 21. And if any of you guys are familiar with what that text is, we're going to... Just a review here. Remember the argument of the book so far, Romans 1, 1 through 17. Paul wanted to preach the gospel in Rome because it revealed a righteousness from God which everyone who believed, by which everyone who believed could be saved. And then as you move into the next section, Romans 1, 18 through 3, 19, that large section, he explains that everyone needs this saving righteousness revealed in the gospel Uh, Because they are under God's wrath for their unrighteousness. So they need the righteousness of the gospel because they are unrighteous. They need to be saved because they are under God's wrath. And then um, in Romans 3.21, that sort of beating heart center of the book, he explains that the gospel reveals the righteousness which is given by God as a gracious gift. And it's based on Christ's atoning sacrifice. And it's given to every sinner who believes in him. So that's where you really get to the nub of justification by faith in that book, in that section, how God could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The next chapter, chapter four, Paul expounded Genesis 15, six, Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And he expounded it just to show, I think, how the gift of justification by faith, which he'd been talking about, is now revealed in the gospel, how that's not somehow contrary to the old covenant scriptures, but rather was even taught in them, is in harmony with them. And then finally, in Romans chapter 5, and I mentioned that in 5 through 8, we're really making a significant turn in the book from uh, talking about the gospel of justification by grace through faith, we're turning now to talk about other blessings which we receive with along with justification. So having been justified, these things are also true of us. Okay, so that's we're moving into that section and in just the previous verses to our text, Romans five, one through eleven, Paul explained that a justified person also possesses peace with God right? A standing in his favor, grace, joy. Uh, We rejoice in both what our past, our past blessings that we are, the blessings that we have and also our future hope. And the hope he describes as a hope of future glory. And we receive them all through Jesus Christ, right? He's the mediator by which we receive every blessing of redemption. Okay, so that's, that's where we Landed, or that's where we, we left off. And particularly this aspect right here is what you have to remember. This is what he was talking about just before our text. Our hope of future glory. And I talked about that being the hope of glory being the hope of being glorified. Sharing in the glory of God that is being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, just a little preview of where we're headed today. So Paul, in this text now, 12 through 21, 
Paul is going to further establish why justified believers have this hope of glory, this hope of final salvation and glorification in the future. He's going to establish more why we have this hope by explaining how the power of Christ's obedience as the second Adam is abundantly sufficient to overcome the disobedience of the first Adam and all of its consequences. He's going to say, how do you know that you are going to receive this future glory, future hope? Well, because the work of Christ is sufficient to overcome the sin of Adam. You remember where sin abounded? What? Grace. Grace abounded much more. So that's the argument. So when you come to the end of this passage, with all of the theological things we're going to have to talk about, the big point that you should come away with, the takeaway is, you can have hope. Because the work of Christ has overcome the work, the sin of Adam. Does that make sense? Okay, so we'll see where we're headed here. So if someone would start us off by reading Romans chapter 5, Romans 5, 12 through 14. This first section here. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Okay. These passages, you can read them and just sort of do a double take. Like, there's a lot in there that's confusing, a lot I don't understand. So we're going to try to unpack here. Paul is going to begin here by just explaining the connection between our experience of sin and death and Adam's original sin. And he's basically saying that our experience of sin and death is the result of Adam's first sin. And that's something that if you're familiar with the Bible storyline at all, you know that's true. But let's look at it more specifically. I wrote a little summary here. Paul begins here by explaining that humanity experienced the consequences of Adam's first sin, even before the law was given through Moses. Let me just uh, dive in a little deeper here. Verse 12, right? If you look at that, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, I'm going to explain what I think this means, and you're going to say, well, how did you get that from the text? And then, I'm, you see, you see interpretive question. We're going to go to one of those little interpretive question slides, and I'm going to explain it a little bit further. But I think what he's saying here is that the guilt and consequence of Adam's first sin was passed down to all humanity because, it says there, because all sinned. I'm arguing that his meaning is that they sinned in him, in Adam. When he sinned, it counted for them. That's, that's what I'm going to argue. Why? Well, I think the explanation of it is because as the first man, God had designated Adam as their representative head. And just to give you a little illustration of that, we have the sad experience of having representatives here in California, right? People who act on our behalf in Sacramento. And what they decide and do counts for us. Now, some people, we are happy with the decisions they make. Other people, we're not. But regardless of that, they're our representative. They act on our behalf. So both the good things that result from their decisions and the consequences, we, they count for us because they're our representative. Well, Adam, the first man, seems to have been designated by God to be our representative, to act on our behalf. So what he did seems to have counted for us. So that's why you say, well, how come I'm suffering the consequences of sin here in my life and 
I didn't really seem to have a chance to avoid it. I was born a sinner, right? A guilty sinner. Well, that's because Adam acted on your behalf. And you say, well, how, how come? Because he was the first man. He was the head of the human race. And God seems to have set it up that way. And lest you start kicking against that and going, well, that's not fair. Have you ever had your kids do that to you? That's what we do with God. We should be careful because he also set up another man as our representative. And what he did counted for us as well. And we're very grateful for that. But the two are in parallel. First Adam, second Adam. What he did counted for us and what he did counted for us. That's, I think, and I'll explain a little bit more about how I landed there. But verse 13 and 14, he says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Okay, now let me just stop there. What is he saying there, right? (laughs) Well, he's explaining how sin and death were in the world and were universal. In other words, everyone experienced sin and death even before any laws from God were given, particularly referring to the law of Moses, right? Because you could say, well, why is there sin and death in the world after Adam when there's no laws given from God to break? And he's explaining, he says, see, the reason is because of this. Sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin and death spread to all men because all sinned. And I'm going to argue in him. That's why there is sin and death in the world between Adam and Moses, even before, even though no law was given, right? You can't break a law before the law is given to you. And yet he's saying there's... There's still sin and death in the world. Why? Because of this, right? Because of verse 12. And it's a reality even for those who never broke a specific command like Adam did. So Adam did have a law, right? What was the law that Adam had? Yeah, don't eat of the tree, right? And he did. And so you understand how Adam died because God had said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, right? But what about all of us who didn't have a specific command like Adam? How did we end up with death and sin? Well, he's saying because of Adam, right? Because what he did counted for us. And I'm going to argue because we sinned in him. So this is really an explanation. He's saying this, verse 12, explains the universality of sin and death between Adam and Moses, you know, the two, you know, Adam had a law, Moses gave a law, but what about everyone in between? He didn't have law. How come they are condemned and have, are are guilty sinners? Because what Adam did counted for them. And then finally, he says, Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was the first man. He was appointed as, by God, it seems, to act on our behalf. That's the whole point of verse 12. What he did ended up counting for us. We receive the consequences of his sin. And here he says that in that capacity, as the representative head of mankind who acted on their behalf, in that capacity, he was a type of the one who was to come. Now, who do you think is he's referring to when he says the one who was to come? Jesus, right? So he's saying Adam is a type of Jesus. Now, a type is someone who is in in scriptures. You have types that are either people or things or institutions. And what they do, the way they function as a type is they prefigure or foreshadow and point you forward to someone else. And there's always this parallel between what they point forward to and the original thing. So type and anti-type, the type prefigures and points you forward to the anti-type, right? So if you think of Adam, he prefigured and he pointed you forward to Jesus in some way. How? 
While he was the head of humanity, Jesus is the head of humanity, of the church. And he was the representative of that humanity. Well, Jesus is the representative of that humanity. And what he did counted for all. And what he did counted for all. You see, Adam was a type of Christ. He prefigured and pointed forward to Christ. Now you also, every time you have a type, you have an escalation, right? In other words, the antitype is greater than the type. And Jesus is greater than Adam. In fact, that's going to be this whole point is the work of Christ turns out to swallow up and overcome the work of Adam. You think of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's great line where he says, In Adam all die. In Christ all shall be made alive. Right? So there's this type-anti-type relationship similar to the way that the Old Covenant priests were types of Jesus. The Old Covenant sacrifices were types of the sacrifice of Christ. And the Old Davidic kings were types of, the great, of Jesus as our great Davidic king. Same with Adam. That's why Jesus is sometimes called the second Adam. At this point, just here, any questions that you want to follow up on? Without getting into this, I'm going to deal with it in the interpretive question. Any questions? Is this sort of like when it says that Levi worshipped, uh, offered a sacrifice in the loins of Abraham at Melchizedek, is it sort of the same thing that we were in Adam in a real way? He was the, he was the beginning of all humanity. Yeah, I mean, I think there is some parallel. I think that's a little bit different. I think that's more of an organic relationship where he's saying that the patriarchs, including Levi, were in the loins of Abraham when he submitted to Melchizedek. Here, I think the idea is more, there's, there certainly is an organic connection. We are Adam's descendants, but there's this designation as our representative a representative headship. Any other questions? Okay, let's dive in here. We want to focus on this, and where did I get this idea that, or what does this phrase here mean? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all because all sinned. How do we interpret that? There's been a long history of debate over how to interpret that line. It's not easy. The interpretation I'm going to give you is not the only interpretation adopted by evangelical conservative scholars, but let's dive into it. What does Paul mean when he says, and so death spread to all men because all sinned? Now, let me just say, first of all, this little line here, and so, right? Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so, when he says... And so, there's clearly, what he's doing is he is establishing a causal connection between the first part of what he's saying here and this. So, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so, because of that, death spread to all men because all sin. And I think that causal connection is supported when you look at the rest of the verse. He's developing a causal connection between Adam's sin and our experience throughout the passage. If you look at look at verses 18 and 19 real quickly. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Causal connection. Adam's sin led to our condemnation. All men. Verse 19. As by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You say, how was I made a sinner? Well, you might think it's because you sinned. That's not what the text says, right? By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Causal connection, right? And that's, I think, what he's... Same thing here. As sin came into the world through one man, death through sin. And so, because of that, death spread to all men because all sin. Because there's a causal connection between Adam's sin and our experience of death. 
But when you look at that phrase here, you realize there's also another causal issue here. Why did Adam's sin lead to our death? Why? Because all sinned. More specifically, death spread to all men because all sinned. This is explaining a little bit more why Adam's sin led to our death. Because in reality, we all sinned. Now, when you first read this line, right? So death spread to all men because all sinned. What's the first, how is is the most natural way to interpret that? Death spread to all men because all sinned. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Death is for our own sin. Right. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you think what he's saying is, Adam died because he sinned. And that sort of opened the floodgates. And then we all died because we all sinned. That's what you naturally think. What's the problem with that? Is there any problem with that? Because death came before sin? Well, okay. Before all were born. Well, death entered into the world before all, before all sin. Yes, that's true. Let's just say... It takes away the representative part of Okay, but let's... Then you might be presuming something, right? That's developed later in the text. It sounds like we, we're, we're sinning because... If I said to you, every person dies simply as a consequence of their own sin. In other words... At some point in their life, before they commit their first sin, they're born into the world innocent, and then they commit their first sin, and then they become guilty, and then they die. Uh, is there any problems with that? What would be the problem with that? Born into the world, clean slate, innocent. Because they're not. They're already sinners. Who in the history of the church believed that, by the way? Does anyone know? Pelagius. Pelagius, who was condemned by the church as a heretic. Why was he condemned by the church as a heretic? Sounds like you can't, you have the choice to sin, and if you wouldn't sin, you know, maybe you couldn't. Maybe you decide not to sin instead of having a sin nature. Right, exactly. Because if you have the idea that hey, you're born into the world with a clean slate, you're innocent until you commit your first sin, that would seem to indicate that you don't have a sin nature when you're born. And so every human being, like Adam, goes through this process of their own fall. But that's not what's taught in the scripture, is it? People are born into the world as sinners. And if you're a sinner, in other words, even by your nature, you're a sinner, that means you're guilty too. Because sin is not just act, it's also attitude and nature, right? Sin is something, in other words, if my nature is bent upon sin and hostile to God, by my very nature, that makes me guilty right away, even before I actually commit my first sin. So the problem with the idea, with the most sort of what you would naturally think, you know, everyone sinned like Adam, therefore everyone died like Adam, is that actually that's contrary to other parts of Scripture. So for instance... If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, right? Look at that last phrase, verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Think about Let that sink in. By nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Mankind are children of wrath. They are people who deserve God's wrath because they sinned. Is that what it says? By their very nature. By nature we are sinners. And as sinners we deserve God's wrath. And we're born into the world that way. Right? You you hold your little baby in your hand and you think this is the most innocent, beautiful little child but the problem is the child 
is not so innocent, is it? Because as soon as that child can show it, you begin to see the, sin, the, the bent in their nature upon sin, right? It doesn't mean that there's nothing good and beautiful about your child. It just means that they're born with a sinful nature. If we're all born into the world as sinners, that means we're born into the world guilty because of our very nature, by nature, children of wrath. And so that, that what seems like the most natural interpretation really doesn't work. So you're left with a couple of other possibilities. It could mean... When it says all sin, death spread to all men because all sinned, it could mean that all sinned individually because they inherited Adam's corruption. And that's the causal connection. Adam sinned and brought death into the world, and we all inherited Adam's sinful nature, and that's why we all sinned, and that's why death spread to everybody, because... We inherited Adam's corruption. So does that, does that make sense? So death spread to all men because all sinned. And the causal connection between Adam's sin and our sin is a passing of his nature to us. Now, one interesting thing about that is that assumes quite a lot that isn't actually in the text. The text doesn't really say anything about us inheriting Adam's sin nature. It just says we all sinned. So that leads to another possibility. The another possibility is that when it says all sinned, it's connecting Adam's sin with our sin. That it would be saying that we sinned in Adam. That is, when he sinned, he was our representative and what he did counted for us. And so there's a sense in which the reason why death spread to us is because we sinned in Adam. He was our representative. And we inherited not just, yes, we did inherit his corruption, but we also inherited his very guilt. So in other words, when Adam sinned, he brought all of those who were in him into the realm of guilt. Because what he did counted for us. That would be the view of what we call representative headship. So... That doesn't mean that there isn't also, that we didn't also inherit Adam's corruption. Clearly we did, right? We are by nature children of wrath. It just would mean that that's not what he's talking about in this text. In this text, he would be talking about when he says, because all sinned, he'd be talking about this connection of representation. That Adam sinned and we sinned in Adam. And that's why the consequences of Adam's sin, death, are inherited by us as well. And I actually think that this interpretation fits best with the context. So look at verses 18 and 19. We're going to obviously look at these more closely a little bit later, but he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all. I just think about that. Why am I condemned? Because of Adam's trespass and then he says so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men now why why did adam or why did jesus's obedience lead to our justification what's the relationship there why did jesus's righteousness his obedience to god lead to our justification we didn't obey representative head. Right. The one man's righteousness also in the same way applied right. to all in him. You guys have heard the word imputation, right? What he did was credited to us. So God looks at us and credits Jesus' obedience to us. You guys have heard that? Well, that's the parallel. So if that's true of Christ, wouldn't that be what he's saying is the connection between Adam's sin and ours, right? He says, one trespass led to condemnation for all. So if Christ's obedience was credited to us, leading to our justification, the parallel would seem to be that 
Adam's disobedience was credited to us, leading to our condemnation. The parallel is imputation. Adam's sin was credited to us because he was our representative. Jesus's obedience was credited to us. He was our representative. There's a parallel there. The parallel seems to indicate that both are imputation. We sinned in Adam. When he sinned, it was like we sinned because what he did counted for us. Do you see? And if you look at the next, it's the same one. Same way, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The connection there can't be, you know, Jesus obeyed, and therefore he, as a result of that, we all obeyed and were righteous because of our obedience. How could that be? (laughs) We can't. That doesn't make sense. He obeyed. And it led to us being credited righteous in him. Well, the same with Adam. Adam disobeyed. And because of that, we were counted as sinners. So you see, I think that's why I would say, even though it's not as explicit in Romans 5.12, I think it's there as the text develops. There's a relationship of representation That means when Adam sinned, we sinned. And because of that, the consequence for Adam's sin is passed to us. So we're born into this world guilty in Adam. And that's why we have we're born with a sin nature that and born under the judgment of God. That's a tough pill to swallow, like I said. But at the same time, it sets up the parallel for why when we are born again in Christ, right? When we are united to Christ, we receive as a gift his righteousness and his life. Because there's that parallel. First Adam, second Adam. Okay. Any questions? All right. Um, I have a question. So if like when Adam is like, he's the one that sinned, you know, we inherit sin. Right. And... It's almost as if, I know that like, we're all guilty, we're all born guilty, but we inherited it. So it's like we couldn't choose whether we were guilty or not, obviously. Right. But when Christ was the parallel, he he died. Why is it, it seems like if he's the parallel, he's the greater Adam. He's the second right. Adam. Right. His death should have been covered over. You know, it should have like made everyone in this like obedience. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Everyone should have been changed. Right. Like, now it's like this. So how come Adam's applies to all men and Christ not to all men? Right. Well, the issue is that Adam, there's a difference between who represented, who they represented, right? Adam didn't, Adam represented all humanity. Jesus did not represent all humanity. He represented those whom God had purposed to save. And it's so like you. Right. Right, so the the greaterness of Jesus's obedience is not the extent, but rather it is the quality. And I think when you ask why, I mean, I don't know why. I think I think I could say one thing, and that is God. Romans 9 tells us that God has a purpose not to save everyone, right? But he talks about vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. And that both serve to glorify his character. So one displayed his mercy, one displayed his wrath. And that what happens is that ends up showing a fuller display of his character than if he just saved everyone and it was mercy to all and no wrath to any. Now you might say, "Well, I don't, I don't like that, you know, because what about the people that are not saved?" And I don't, I don't say that lightly, but I say that's where Paul really calls us to humble ourselves. Like in Romans chapter nine, he says, "Who are you, O man, to talk back to God?" You know, like will the potter say to the, or will the pot say to the potter, you know, why did you make me like this? And so there's a sense in which you're touching upon very difficult things for us to wrap our mind around. But this is where we have to recognize that, you know, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God. Like, who can be his counselor? Who can 
question his purposes. Certainly not me, a tiny little ant. <laughs> Uh, and a sinner at that, right? So, yeah. God gave us justice. We would all have been destroyed. Why any? Well, of course, yeah. But I think her question is, why the whole plan? You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it came, actually came up this week. Someone called it double election. Right. Where it showed, and I didn't understand that term. They said they, the person I was speaking with said they didn't believe in double election. And I don't understand it, other right. than. God chose those some some people, right? Vessel of destruction is that what that would be considered? I don't use that terminology. Some people talk about double predestination, right? Um, in other words, God predestined some to be saved in Christ and predestined some to be right. perish in hell, as if the way that He predestined some and the way that He so as if there was an equal equality to the two. And I don't think that's what you see in Scripture. I think what you see is that there is, he actively, he, he predestines some to salvation. You never see the word predestined or election applied to the lost. What you see is what he doesn't do, right? <laughs> that he passes over. That he chooses not to give saving grace and you say well, that's not fair how could he choose to give grace to some and not to others and that's where you say well as soon as you talk about fair you're talking about justice right and that's the whole point if it is grace if it's freely given then it can't be unfair for him to not give it <laughs> otherwise you would be saying that he owed it but grace is free favor right given to people who don't deserve it so I would just say, I don't like the language of double predestination because it sets up this equal ultimacy when that's not doesn't seem to be how the scriptures portray it. He chooses to save some and not others. So would you say that they're both ordained by God and the eternal purposes of God? Yeah, for sure. It's not like this surprised him. But he predestines some... He gives them grace, and he doesn't others. He passes over others in his grace. And he doesn't owe grace to anyone. Does that make sense? It's, you're asking a difficult question, but we'll talk about more about it also when we get to... Paul doesn't dodge the question. We have a whole chapter that will come, but that's why I stopped at Romans 7, so we don't have to... No, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Okay, let's move on here because for the sake of time. So remember in verse at the end of verse 12, he had said that Adam is a type of the one to come. Adam prefigured and pointed forward to Jesus. Jesus is the second Adam in that regard. I think that really when the rest of the passage is unpacking that typological relationship, in what way did Adam prefigure and point forward to Christ? And he gives the answer here, right? So Paul now is demonstrating how the typology between Adam and Jesus worked by pointing out parallel differences between them. Do you see the not like, not like? So there's, it's still parallel. There's still a parallelism between Adam and Christ. That's what a type, typology is all about, is that is there's a prefiguring and appointing forward you. There's a parallel between Adam and Jesus, but in this way there's a parallel in there's parallel differences between them, right? So he's gonna talk about the differences between their actions. So parallel difference one in verse 15 says the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So you see, there's the parallelism in the sense that there's the emphasis upon one man, one man, Adam, Christ. But what he's emphasizing is the ironic difference, right? He's emphasizing that through the one man's sin, those he represented, right, the many he calls them, uh, received a punishment of death. 
But through the other one man, through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, those he represented received a free gift of grace. So there's parallelism, but there's a sweet difference. Adam gave death to those he represented. Jesus gave a free gift of grace. And so you go, okay, that's a good difference. Next, verse 16, that second parallel difference, look, and the free gift, so what is the free gift? The free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So when God judged Adam's one trespass, it resulted in condemnation. So that's what Adam, that's the inheritance that we had from our father, Adam. Thanks, Adam. That's a good inheritance. You gave us condemnation. But the free gift of Jesus that he provided resulted in the people he represented being justified despite their many trespasses, right? So one sin leads to condemnation for all. We have many sins and Jesus provides us with justification. So there's another parallelism, but also a difference. And then finally, verse 17, Adam's one sin. So let's read the text. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man. So Adam sinned. He committed one sin and it opened the door for death to come in and take control. So through Adam, death took dominion over mankind. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, so those that are in Christ, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now here's how I interpreted this. Adam's one sin brought all humanity under death's reign. But Jesus' free gift of righteousness allowed all who receive it to come to life, right? Reign in life to come to life and share his reign, right? So Adam's sin brought us all under the dominion of death. Jesus's free gift brought us to life and allowed us to share in his reign. Because notice, it's not Jesus reigning here. It says those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. So death reigns over us through Adam. We reign in life through Christ. And that is, I think, we share in his reign. Okay, so any questions on this before we move forward? That's a little bit easier than what we've been talking about. All right. So this is meant to show you the superiority of Jesus' work as the second Adam to Adam's work as the first Adam. What he did led us to condemnation and subject to death. What Jesus did, and notice the much moreness. This is getting to the, the question, how is Jesus' work greater than Adam's? Well, because he brought, gave us justification instead of condemnation. And he gave us life instead of death. And he allowed us to reign through Christ rather than being subject to the reign of death. So this is wonderful news, right? This is starting to show us how Christ has overcome the work of Adam. Jeremy? Yeah. Why do you think, I mean, when we usually, the main takeaway we get from this is usually commenting on the similarity. Like, you know, they're both representative heads and we both receive, you know, we receive death and now we receive life. Like, why do you think Paul... That highlights the differences. His main point is not like, look how you all died in Adam, and now look, you can all live in Christ. And they're similar. He says, actually, they're not like... I mean, what... I don't know. Do you you know why he would... Yeah, because I think the similarity is in the fact that what they did counted for us, right? Right. So there's the similarity. That's how... There's a typological relationship. They're both representative heads and what they do count for us. But the difference highlights the greaterness of Christ, right? Adam, what he did counted for us and it stunk, right? <laughs> Jesus, what he did counted for us and it was wonderful. And so the difference, there's a parallelism, but the, the, the difference highlights the much moreness, the greaterness of Christ. That's what I think. I mean, I'm sure that's, is that what you would say too? 
I mean, it is kind of a, there's a paradox there because you think he's emphasizing the similarity. Well, and I was wondering also if in like the death, it's like we actually, because we sinned in Adam, like we got what we deserved, but in Christ, it, I mean, he says repeatedly it's a free gift of grace. And it, it, one of the differences is that it's not something we deserve. Um, I, I don't know. I was wondering about that. Right. I, I, but I would say that his emphasis throughout is not upon our individual sin, is it? Well, we did get what we deserve because we were in Adam in that, in that sense. But the whole emphasis is not upon like how bad I am compared to Tracy. We're all in Adam. We're all just lumped in. So, you know, personal responsibility here is, I think, an outflow, right? That he, What he's talking about here is Adam and Jesus and, how, and what they did and how it counted for us. We are are we punished for our sin too? Absolutely, right? <laughs> but the point he's making here is that even before we ever lived, right? What Adam did already brought death and brought condemnation. So I think that while personal responsibility is a reality, it's not the emphasis here. Would one difference be that that Christ was God. He was human, but he was also God, so he was a different representative than Adam. I mean, he could do so much more for us right? than Adam could. Yeah. Because it says that those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah I, I think that... The Son of Man, but right. it's also God himself. I mean, no, I think... I think all that would be implied here. It's not explicitly talked about, but you know, you could ask the question, why is Jesus such a greater Adam? Well, because he is the God man, because I mean, this is why the virgin birth can't be tossed out, right? Why is the virgin birth important here? He didn't have Adam as his father in that sense, right? I mean, he was a descendant of Adam in one sense that he was a member of the human race, but he didn't have a human father. He was conceived of the virgin. He didn't inherit Adam's guilt or corruption. That's the point of the virgin birth, right? The line was broken there. He was fully human so that he could represent us, but he, was, he did not inherit Adam's guilt or corruption. And therefore, he could make a new start. And that's important. Okay, if we get to the 18 and 19... He says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This in in many ways is a little bit more clean, a little bit more straightforward, a little bit more easy to understand here. And what he's doing is he's continuing to demonstrate the typology, right? How is it that Adam prefigured and pointed forward to Christ, but Christ was greater than Adam? Except here, notice it's emphasis not on not like, it's not on the dissimilarities, but the similarities. So, therefore, as one, so one, right? So it's emphasizing what's similar about them. And the point in both verses is the same. They reiterate the the same basic point, that the guilt for the sin of the one man Adam was imputed, credited to those he represented, which was all mankind. And the righteousness for the obedience of the one man Jesus is also imputed to those he represented, which is, I'm arguing, the elect. And I would also argue, this is, I already explained this, so I'm not going to go over it again. I think that you have to see the relationship here as one of imputation. The one act of righteousness leads to justification. It's not that we actually became righteous because of what Jesus did and earned our own righteousness. We were justified because of his obedience. In fact, what's one reason why I would say that? given everything that we've come through so far in Romans. I mean, have we seen this word before in Romans so far? 
The whole book has been about explaining justification by faith apart from our works. The whole book has been about imputation, the crediting of Jesus' righteousness to us. That we're reckoned righteous based on Christ's work, not ours. So to somehow, of, of course this is talking about imputation here. And I would argue, and therefore here as well, condemnation, justification. Adam's sin was credited to us so that we were guilty in him. And Jesus's righteousness is credited to us so that we are righteous in him. Okay? So we're going to just make this note. These two parallel similarities here demonstrate one aspect of the doctrine of original sin. The guilt for Adam's first trespass was imputed to those he represented, all mankind. The other aspect of original sin isn't dealt with in this passage, but in other passages. And that is that Adam's corruption was passed to those he represented. But of course, I would argue that the two go together. So if you say, well, I don't believe that Adam's guilt was passed to me, but I do believe his corruption was passed to me. Well, then, if you were born a sinner, what's the difference? You're still guilty, right? (laughs) And you didn't do anything in your life to deserve that. It was given to you from birth. You're born a guilty sinner, a sinner, and therefore guilty. And it's all because of Adam. So there's no way of getting around the tough stuff here, right? The good news is that the tough stuff leads you to the good stuff. Because in the same way, I didn't do anything to deserve righteousness. It was all because of Jesus. What he did counted for me. Okay, two real quick things here. What about the all men and the many? Did you guys notice that? Okay, how do we understand all men in verse 18 and the many in verse 19? Well, I would argue that they have to be referring to the same group. I mean, the parallels are just so clear. So he's not like referring to a different group down here, right? The all men and the many are the same. But that immediately leads to some questions, right? Because who did Adam represent? Really, all men. But who did Jesus represent? It says all men, but if what Jesus did counted for all mankind, well, then that would mean that all mankind are justified, right? So here's where I say we shouldn't read too much into either phrase because you could say the same thing here. Well, oh, the many now. So maybe what Adam did didn't count for everyone, just the many. No, listen, don't read too much into either phrase. They're just simply ways of referring to large numbers of people and particularly who each person represented. So all men refers to those that are in Adam. All men here refers to all those who are in Christ. The many refers to those who are in Adam. The many here refers to those who are in Christ. It's, they're just ways of referring to who each person, Adam and Christ, represented. They're not the same group, though. The language is the same, just to emphasize the parallel, but they're not the same group. The all men in Christ is not the same as the all men in Adam. Can't be, otherwise it's universalism. So where did he get that, the many terminology? Well, actually, a lot of people think he got it from Isaiah chapter 53, where Isaiah the prophet talks about how Christ bore the sins of many. That it's tying in the work of Christ as the second Adam into the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. One more thing here. What does Paul mean by the the one act of righteousness? Did that kind of trigger in your mind when you heard that? The one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. You're like, what one act of righteousness of Christ? And then he says, the one man's obedience. This seems like a single act. This seems like it could refer to something more than that. Like his whole life of obedience, right? Well, it is interesting that there is a translational issue here. That phrase, one act of righteousness, could actually be translated as one's act of righteousness. In other words, the one man's righteousness. And if so, they would basically mean the same thing as that. The one man's righteousness, the one man's obedience. You could actually translate it that way. But let's just assume that the ESV is correct in translating it this way. 
then if you think one act of righteousness, what does it evoke in your mind? Probably zooming in on the cross. If the other translation is correct, then when you see the one man's righteousness, the one man's obedience, it could refer more broadly to his entire life of obedience. And in fact, you think of Philippians 2.8 where it says that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, right? So it could refer to his entire life of obedience. And by the way, this is in the Reformed tradition, we've referred to all of Christ's atoning work as obedience, right? And they've talked about his active obedience, fulfilling the demands of the law, or his passive obedience, bearing the law's curses. But both are obedience. There's a sense in which you could look at everything Christ did and you could say, it's all obedience. Even him dying on the cross, what did he say in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but yours. So this was obedience to the point of death. So why am I righteous? Because Christ obeyed for me, even to the point of death. The last little phrase here. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So after summarizing one potential question that a Jew might have up here, Paul concluded the section by summarizing the main point that he's been making in this in a whole passage. So this is the summary statement. So first, the question that a Jew might have, the Jew is saying, wait, I'm guilty in Adam and righteous in Christ. Then that seems to make everything in between, the whole law of Moses, the whole old covenant, it just seems to just pass right over it. Have you just nullified it? Does the law mean nothing now? And Paul says, no, the law means something. The law came in to increase the trespass. (laughs) So trespass, it's synonymous with sin, right? But trespass has a specific connotation. There is a specific law broken. So God said, don't eat the tree. And you broke that. You trespassed that. So when the law comes in, it increases the trespass. It makes sin more evident and therefore guilt more clear. And is that important? What does it point us to? Our need for the grace of Christ and the magnitude of Christ's grace. When you show how much more guilty we are, It makes it clear how much more needy we are of forgiveness, and it makes it clear how much how great Christ's grace has been. If I don't have the law and I don't see my sin as much, I might not think that I need much forgiveness. And I might not appreciate God's grace as much. But the law comes in and just shows us how wretched we are, right? And therefore, how wonderful Christ's grace is. Because that's his point, right? But where sin increased because of the law, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign. So in the end, the dominion of sin resulting in condemnation and death, which came through Adam, will ultimately be overcome by the dominion of grace resulting in righteousness and life, which has come through Jesus Christ. Understanding these things, that we have inherited guilt and corruption from Adam, helps us see a number of things. The whole argument that, hey, 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 um, I have these desires and they're natural. Therefore, they must be good. And you say, you don't understand original sin. (laughs) Because what's natural is not good because we've been born sinners. So you can't just say whatever is natural to me must be good because God made it. No, God didn't make it that way. This is a result of Adam's sin. It also shows us that we're helpless. You're born into the world, a guilty sinner. You know, you don't have a chance like Pelagius thought to have a clean slate when you start so that maybe you can, you know, you could try real hard and and make it. No, we're born in Adam. We need a second Adam. For heaven's sake, please, Lord, a second Adam. And that's what he's given us. So it shows us that just like we're dead in Adam, so we're alive in Christ. He's done it all. He's our representative head. What he did counted for us. Without him, we're nothing. 
And it also helps us to, it frames Christ's work. He's the second Adam. He's our representative head. What he did counted counted for us, just like what Adam did. So that connection between Adam and Christ helps us understand better Christ's work. And then finally, this is the whole point. You say, well, how do I know that I have this hope of future glory? Because Christ's redemptive work is abundantly sufficient to swallow up and overcome Adam's work. What Adam did is bad. We all feel the effects of it. But what Christ did is greater, right? Where sin abounds, grace abounds much, much more, right? And that's the whole point. It's to give us security. Like, I'm in Christ. I wasn't Adam. I'm in Christ. I have hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things. Lord, I, I thank you for just giving us your word to teach us about the person and work of Jesus so that through faith in him and trust in him, we can have salvation. And as a result, we also can have peace and joy and hope of glory. Father, these things fill us with great hope, even though there are aspects of them that we struggle with, struggle to understand and struggle to accept because of our weakness and corruption. Help us to sort through these things. I pray that if anyone's struggling as a result of our class today, that they would go home, study these things out, think about them more. And Lord, that you would give them wisdom and help them to understand. And Lord, if anything I have said has somehow misrepresented you, Lord, let it just fall to the ground. And we just pray that you would teach us and instruct us through these things this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.